Hello and welcome to the Virtually Teachers podcast, the podcast where five teachers from different contexts have been inspired by these strange times to come together in a roundtable format and discuss the big educational questions. My name is David Hibbert and I am the Head of History at School in West Sussex. Um, my name is Chloe Bateman and I am a history teacher at a school in Reading. I'm Simon Davis and I am the Head of History at a school in Oxfordshire. I'm Rachel Lewin. I'm a little bit of an educational and geographical outlier as I'm assistant head for quality of education um, in a through school aged three to 16 uh, on an island off the coast of Britain. I'm also head of history. Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Keaton. I'm a history teacher and uh, assistant head of careers at an independent boarding school in Sussex. Excellent. So we have uh, been inspired by what's been going on and all of the kind of conversations that have been erupting around education issues and all kinds of issues really to come together and begin to think about some of the big questions that we were probably all thinking about but were maybe too busy before to ever really have a chance to discuss properly um, and we thought that for this first episode we would start by discussing a blog by a really uh, interesting and thoughtful head teacher called Michael Merrick um, where he is arguing that coronavirus needs to lead to a bit of a reassessment of what we value in education. Um, it's a really, really interesting blog. Um, I'm gonna read a couple of bits from it just to give us a sense of what he's arguing. Um, and then we're gonna kind of use this as a springboard for discussing the issues he raises um, and then beginning to think about what we might be able to do about them. So in the blog, and we'll link to it in the show notes um, and so you can read it, but I'll just read the kind of key part of his argument. So he says, up to this point, we in education have been the fundamental part of a culture and a structure that expresses it, in which one pathway is elevated as the model of success and against which other pathways are compared. To be successful, to get on, means to be academically successful, and schools have been the place to make this happen. With the coronavirus pandemic, we are seeing a new reckoning of value, as those who we would historically deem as having not been successful present as vital to us all. After all, who would make a dismissive comment about stacking shelves now? Um, it's a really provocative last line. And I have to admit, I've, this has been sort of stuck in my head ever since I read it, because I certainly throughout my career have really seen GCSE outcomes as being a core part of my duty to my students. Um, and that line, I think I first read it um, written by John Thompson, who's a great head teacher um, from York. And he's the idea that your GCSE student, getting a good GCSE grades for your students is the best thing that you can do for them in terms of life chances. And this is a real challenge to that. And and I, I think there's something there and I think that, he, that there's something that we need to consider. But at the same time, I'm still not completely sure that I agree with him. So um, I'm still kind of back and forth, I suppose, in terms of my reflections on it. But I'm really curious to see, first of all, what kind of reflections you had on it and what resonated with you. Um, Chloe, I'll, I'll start off with you. Uh, thank you, David. Yeah, I agree with you. It's been very much at the forefront of my mind since I read the blog. And I think the thing that kind of stood out to me most was the importance of actually being aware of our own values and preconceptions that we bring to our classroom about what the purpose of education is and what actually constitutes an educational success and in terms of like what we would hope that students would go on to do after they finish school because I agree with you I definitely think getting GCSE results getting A-level results is a really important part of my job and I hope that a lot of students that I teach will want to go on to higher education afterwards but when I was reading the blog especially the bit where Michael Merrick says um, he talks about did they not deserve the chance to be successful too and he says something like who wouldn't want these things who wouldn't want to go on and have like a graduate job and uh, become part of this kind of like middle class really I guess um, and I think 
it kind of made me think that actually there's nothing wrong with us having values that we bring to education because we're we're human beings but if we're not self-aware of that like aware that we actually have those values then we're not able to actually realize that other people like parents and students that we come into contact with may have different values and I think if we let those values that we bring to it go unquestioned and it just becomes like the dominant idea that everyone should go into university everyone should kind of actually go on to like a graduate profession then that's when it becomes powerful because it's unquestioned and it can then inadvertently actually alienate students not only just from us as their like their teacher but education and school like in a sort of wider sense so that's kind of been my main thought on the article since I read it that's really thoughtful that's really interesting and I, I guess it's it if we talk a lot about student preconceptions in teaching but certainly being aware of the way that we ourselves think about education and our students and their futures is, is massive. Uh, Rachel, what, are you, what were your reflections? It was exactly what Chloe has raised here um, from the article. I think what was really clever about it was it did make us reflect on how far we in education have been trying to create carbon copies of our often middle-class university-educated selves. Um, he had a line about the fact there was a mixture of vanity and Pelagianism underpinning our educational attitudes. So basically achieving was being like me and children only need to try harder and have a growth mindset to achieve it. And I bet you, uh, some of you listening would at some point have taught in a school with the motto, believe and achieve. Um, this is saying actually, you know, you don't need to be like me to achieve. Um, and I think, I think this is a partly where I, I have got a slightly different approach to it because um, I'm teaching in a community in a school where vocational qualifications have actually been really valued highly traditionally. Um, teaching in a coastal school, I've often heard about schools like mine being a graveyard of aspirations because too few students aspire to university or to professions. There's too low an uptake of EBAC subjects. And, and yes, our school has struggled with that. A few years ago, we had a progress rate of minus 0.5 because too many students had taken vocational options and they'd got a 90% plus pass rate in maths and English and they'd got distinctions in engineering or travel and tourism, um, but it wasn't seen as kind of real measurable education. Mm. So we did what you have to do. We turned it around by utterly changing our options process um, going up to a plus 0.86. But I really question, and I may be questioning even more right now, what was lost along the way, how much the self-image of children who are actually highly skilled in vocational subjects, who live in a community where boat engine maintenance is hugely valuable, how was that self-image shaken? And it's making me think right now, as our current year nines are going through the options process, you know, what is it that we really want for those children? Is this in some ways an opportunity to think about how we can shift our priorities in terms of the purpose and the outcomes of education? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, this might be a really interesting thing to talk about in a future episode, but um, yeah. I think, Chloe, you were saying about how having an awareness of our preconceptions as teachers is important, but also perhaps being aware of how the metrics that we use express themselves in what we prioritize and the way that that then is reflected on, on students is really, really interesting. Uh, Jacob, what are, what are your thoughts here? I think, I mean, I'm in agreement with Rachel and Chloe very much, 
but I, I'd say one thing to add to that is that ultimately, as history teachers, well, as, as teachers of any subject, but I think it's particularly nice with history because it's a subject that uh, I, I think I said to this to before in a, a private conversation that you never meet an adult that doesn't enjoy learning about the past. And that's one of the beauties of our subject in that no matter when students leave school, even if they don't enjoy history at school, because perhaps they're put off with essay writing or exams, God forbid, then they are most certainly going to come back to enjoying some study of the past, whether that be their own family tree or going to a local reenactment of medieval battle or something like that, or going to visit a castle or something on, on a trip. Enjoyment of the past is something which is just generally accepted as a good pastime, a, no, a nice thing to do when you're an adult, whether you're a historian or not, or a history teacher or not. So I think for us, I think making sure that we're conveying a passion for our subject is the most important thing. And that generally means not getting too hung up on exams. And I think Rachel raised a good point there about the way in which schools are assessed being very results oriented. I think that's just the nature of the rise of the Excel spreadsheet, really, in the sense that there's there's greater accountability now because that's possible in the kind of technological world that we live in. But that shouldn't mean that we have that at the expense of conveying the passion for our subject and helping our students to enjoy it as well. I think you can have both. I think you can do well in exams and enjoy the subject but if it gets to the stage where a student's doing a subject for the sake of passing the exam then obviously that becomes a problem yeah absolutely and perhaps that comes back again to us and then the way that we pass on those values to our students um simon what are your what are your thoughts there um obviously i agree i agree with everyone and i don't think we could take a teacher in the country and put them into this forum and they wouldn't agree with what we've all said um, and it's simply the nature of the time we're living through even if we park education for a minute um, you know this this whole situation in the world right now is, is forcing us all to reflect I, I particularly focus I think on on the concept of growth mindset in this and I think growth mindset in schools over the last few years and, and you know particularly since it's been adopted by schools in in the sort of in, in the way it was intended you know uh, when it when it started it was like talk about growth mindset explicitly but carol dweck was you know she was always very upfront you know she almost had like a fight she almost had like a fight club type motto about growth mindset like rule number one about growth mindset you don't say growth mindset we don't talk about growth mindset and i think that's kind of true and i and 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 therefore, if, if we really stick with that, when we do get back to the normal or whatever normal looks like after this, we, we still need to encourage kids to learn and to learn as much as they can. But it's, it's a case of, it's the case of that purpose. And I, I personally think a, a good avenue going forward is, is linked to mental health. You know, mental health is, is, is rightfully a huge thing in schools right now. And, and the amount of information we consume and what information it is we consume. And I think we can use education as a, as a vanguard to, to say, look, that part of the reason for learning lots of stuff is it makes you a fuller person. Whatever you go on to do, you know, we, we, we as your teachers are not masters of the economy. We're not going to fix whatever you go on to next. But, you know, learning for learning's sake. Yeah, we, we say that, learning for learning's sake. But, you know, as teachers and leaders, can we articulate that more into a, into a school model? 
um, in terms of bettering and, and making our kids healthier instead of about, all right, learn this stuff so you can learn something else and ta-da, one day you're a lawyer. That's really, really interesting. I read a fascinating article a couple of months ago. It was all about student self-concepts. Um, and it had this um, really interesting idea that what we had to do if we wanted to change student, either the student sense of themselves or student behavior is to try and change their self-concept. Um, and I think that, again, links back to us as teachers um, in terms of the values that we communicate, but also the way that our systems express uh, express themselves in the student experience as well. Um, kind of building on that then, I guess, is this issue that Michael Merrick brings up about the um, the things we value and the way we communicate those. Is there anything we can do about that on an individual teacher level or perhaps even um, on a system-wide level? Are there things that we can do to kind of avoid communicating um, th and these kind of hierarchies of value that, that Merrick talks about? Um, Chloe, what do you reckon? No, I think that's a really like fundamental question because obviously like acknowledging the article is is great but I think then thinking yeah well, how can we actually build on that and actually do something with it that's practical and the thing that like sprung to mind almost immediately for me was um in terms of a lot of us have mentioned this line that he says about actually making sure that we can't have students thinking that they just have to become like us like teachers um entering that kind of graduate profession I think one way that that can be done on a kind of system-wide or school-wide basis is actually through careers provision and making sure that there is like a really robust uh, provision for careers that's actually embedded throughout the curriculum because I think what that does if we have a system which is good for careers then it will be a way of systematically ensuring that our own biases about what constitutes like educational life successes are not just being kind of unconsciously replicated within what and how we teach so as an example, at the school that I work at, careers is quite a big, kind of a big thing. And we have a lot of assemblies, a lot of like workshops on apprenticeships, um, how to get into direct employment, um, all kinds of different routes are advertised and they're advertised equally uh, in terms of the quality and quantity of them. So I think actually showing students that, yeah, you might not want to go to university, that's absolutely fine. You can still study these subjects because you enjoy them. You may go on to be a plumber and actually that's completely as, as valuable as anything else. And I think making sure that that message comes across in how you talk about and how you provide for different careers at all year group levels is really, really key to that. That's really fascinating. Jacob, you're also, as you mentioned earlier, involved in careers provision in your context. Do you have anything to kind of to add to that? Yeah, I think, well, two, well, two things. I think the, first, the first thing you talked about modelling um, modeling behavior for our students or something that we can do for as teachers and I think one of the beauties of history again is that our subject lends itself to not passing judgment on the past and that means the values and concerns to using the phrase in a mark scheme of some kind of people in the past as well so uh, I know some of us were recently involved on a unit on the middle ages which was all about medieval society and the, the generalization about that is that everyone back then was stupid but why should we think that why is that why why do we think that is a, is a question and kind of having um having lessons and ideas in mentioned in class which challenge preconceptions in that way of people's understanding of the past hopefully helps us all to be better human beings and that we're less likely perhaps to pass judgment on others in the present as well one way in which the study of the past can help the present from a careers perspective i think um that um one thing that we do here is we have lots of former students back 
or um well now we're doing it over the internet doing kind of podcasts like this one where we talk to them about their career path and what they've gone on to do in life after school and i think um I think I mentioned this before as well, that the independent sector is very good at keeping in touch with students that have, have left and it has that kind of community. It's not alone in that, but I think, uh, I think it, it does do that very well. And that's one of the, the good things about it. So, I mean, we're blessed in a sense that we've got lots of different people from a whole wide variety of occupations come back. And I think the key thing, the key message that always comes across in any careers talk or networking event or tea or whatever that I've heard is that nearly all career paths are non-linear pretty much now. And, uh, that's kind of to be expected. And I think helping students to realise that they don't have to panic if they don't know what they want to be by the age of 11, they're not sure on being a doctor or surgeon at the age of 10 or 11, it's absolutely fine. And I think the more they hear from adults who come in and say they've changed paths and gone into law in their late 30s or something, you know, that, that's a great thing for them to hear. Yeah, absolutely. That's really well, ex- really well expressed. That's very thoughtful. Uh, Simon, do you have any thoughts here? Um, again, careers is the way forward, and uh, um, actually, it's interesting. The new, the new PSHE framework for schools that goes live from September is very robust in that area, um, in terms of what is expected of schools, in terms of how they talk about careers, and how they have a curriculum progression model for how kids understand what a career is, and and the sort of things you need to do in life to facilitate getting a career, whatever it's in. Um, so I, I think a lot, a lot is on schools in terms of in terms of what they make of that of that new criteria, that new curriculum criteria, which which we can all assume, I suppose, is still going live in September. Um, it's it's quite a big change uh, for those of us who have seen the framework. And, and yeah, the the schools that do that best. I think we'll tackle this issue best in terms of how you make education you know, more on the tenants that um, the blog post we're talking about um, sort of suggests we should. That's really, really interesting. And I, I wonder whether, because I think in terms of debates around it, the purpose of education, I think there tends to be often it's seen as a bit of a binary that education is for to help you prepare for work or education is yeah. to help you learn stuff because of the value um, that that stuff has in terms of informing the future life, regardless of work. Um, and I think what we seem to be arguing for here is maybe challenging that binary and saying that actually both these things are valuable and need to be married in a, in, in a way that, that weighs them up and, and sees them both as valuable. Rachel, do you have any, uh, any thoughts there? I love the way that I think uh, Jacob's point there um, kind of, yes, marries, brings together that sort of false dichotomy there. I love the idea that learning about kind of diversity in the past um, opens children up to to being open to diversity in the future and in their careers and in their work and in what's valuable in life. I think that's really great. Um, And I do think, you know, that this is, this, this awful tragic situation is in some ways quite an amazing opportunity for us to consider and rethink the purpose of education um, and how we are building in uh, an understanding of education for life. I think that PSHE uh, curriculum, what great timing for us all to be really revisiting how we teach PSHE in our schools. Um, and there was just a whole education meeting today where we were reflecting on what, if we were in school in normal times now, we would be prioritising. And of course, we'd be pushing 
pretty much our whole energy into year six and year 11 and year 13, wouldn't we? And all that energy would be focused on outcomes and exams and revision sessions and interventions. And now actually, we're looking at how we develop independent learning attitudes and aptitudes in our key stage three students. Um, but we're also supporting those exam groups who are no longer exam groups in a much more holistic way. So what we're providing for them at the moment is much more thinking about what they really need for their next stages of education and training. Um, so thinking about in-school transition and transition on towards their careers is so important in those year groups and it often gets utterly subsumed in just thinking about preparing for exams. That's really fascinating and I wonder whether this is perhaps a slightly cynical thing to say but I wonder whether part of that is because the schools now know that they're not going to be league tables this year and there's not going to be progress eight scores this year and actually suddenly that combined with the situation that we find ourselves in suddenly changes those hierarchies of, of value that kind of are perhaps expressed um, in by people in leadership positions but also um, it may be imposed on us by the accountability systems above us as well. That's really, really interesting there. Um, so just to close, I thought it might be quite nice given that we're all inside or inside um, beyond our hour of daily exercise. Um, that if we could give a recommendation to the listeners of, of something we've been doing during lockdown or enjoying during lockdown um, that could help kind of brighten up people's lives a little bit. Um, Jacob, starting with you. Yeah, well, I think reading is the main thing. And I, I, I was, I was going to say as well, as part of modelling being a, a history teacher as well, I think, you know, we've got to take time, even in the school term, normal busy term, to, to be reading ourselves. I think that if we're not enjoying a history book in any one occasion, then, you know, we're kind of not modelling that, that passion for our students. So even when time, term gets busy, I think it's really important to take time to read. And hopefully this this might allow people allow us to reflect and think about how nice it is to, to sit back and read if we've got more time at the moment. So I've been reading a huge biography of Napoleon actually because I didn't know much about the French Revolution or Napoleon and to be honest I've been really really impressed. I thought I'd be put off by the kind of great man history but actually a bit of Andrew Roberts in the afternoon in the sun is really good and I've very much would have liked to lived in Napoleonic France after reading half of it so see what the other half happens probably not when I get to the end but it's enjoyable. Fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've really loved the opportunity to, to read as well. Uh, Rachel, what, what do you think? Well, I also, fascinated by that period, um, I've been indulging myself, Jacob, by rereading the uh, Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander series. Oh, I love that film, yeah. Uh, uh, well, the film is the film, but the 15 <laughs> novels are amazing. It's like Jane Austen at sea. Um, and yeah, I've just raced through the first uh, 11, but I don't know how many times I've read them before. But so I'm, I'm utterly immersed in uh, the Napoleonic period. Um, We're covering both sides of the Napoleonic Wars there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, if you're enjoying Napoleon, you should definitely read those books. I should. I love the film, especially when he plays the violin in the back of the ship at the end. You, but you, I should try to read. I should try to read them again. I did try a long time do. ago, but I, I should retry. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, I think you're also a big historical fiction fan. Have you got any recommendations? I am, yes. Um, this time it's a series which is on Amazon Prime um, called Outlander. I think it's been on there, I think it's reasonably old, like a few years old. Um, it's set in the 18th century 
And it's basically, and bear with me on this, this sounds a bit odd, but it is actually much better than it sounds. Um, it's about a woman who is in 1945 and she goes to Scotland and goes back in time to the 18th century. Um, and she is involved in like the Battle of Culloden and lots of like key events in um, Scottish history. It's really good. There's five series and I think bear with it. it it can be a bit slow in places, lots of like sweeping footage of like Scottish moorland. Um, but there are some really, really good bits. And it's very good from like a historical point of view because she's uh, the main character, Claire, is a, a nurse. So seeing her like perspective on like 18th century medicine from like a 20th century perspective is really, really good, um, especially if you actually teach medicine, um, like medical history as part of the GCSE. It's really good for that. So that would be my recommendation. Fascinating. I have to check that out. Simon, what, uh, what are your, your recommendation? Well, I'd have to actually agree with Chloe now, having now watched the first two episodes of Outlander. I can see, uh, I can see how you can get addicted to it. So that might be a bit of a binge-worthy TV series. Um, but otherwise, I would just tell everyone, just get exercising. Just get exercising. If you can think of anything as more horrifying as a group of history teachers that do CrossFit, I seem to have locked myself into a sort of to the death with uh with a good friend who's also a head of history uh nearby who who does this sport with me and um daily we seem to be taking each other on in burpee competitions and sort of clean and press competitions in our gardens it's 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 getting pretty horrendous actually i think we need to remember we have jobs at some point <laughs> that sounds sounds very very healthy um i, I guess my recommendation is uh, i've got two things i'm going to cheat uh based around the theme of evoking what it's like to be outside even when you're not outside um first of all there's a really brilliant podcast which i've come across called the folk on foot podcast and it's by matthew bannister um and it's basically the idea is he just goes to a place that's inspired a folk musician um, and they walk around it with a folk musician and then the folk musician sings some songs in the places that inspired them um, it's absolutely brilliant there's a, a, one of my favorite episodes was with this amazing folk musician called julie fowlis um, who's a Scottish singer and they walk around Loch Ness and it's amazing really beautiful and gave and it's so well described you almost feel like you're on the walk with them um, and linked to that there's also on Netflix a lovely series of Japanese films by a brilliant studio called Studio Ghibli um, they're hand-drawn animation made in Japan and the way they draw and evoke kind of outdoor landscapes is, is really something so if you fancy a bit of outdoor joy in your life even when you're indoors that's uh, that's a really good really good place to go. Uh, so thank you very much for, to everyone for joining us and thank you very much for listening to the Virtually Teachers podcast this week um, and do join us next week where we are going to build on some of the discussions um, and think about the topic of accountability in schools in this country um, and do join us for that. Thank you very much.